Welcome to Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello everybody, this is Andres Valencia, broadcasting from Cali, Colombia, in the heart of Abiyajala. Today, as you have noticed, we don't have a receipt introducing this series of podcast Chasing Encounters. We have Yesid as our guest today. So I'm very you know, pleased and honored to introduce Yesid. Uh, he has been my friend since 2015 that we met for the first time in a cold January morning in Toronto. So welcome Yesid, how do you do? Yes, thank you so much, Andres, for this invitation. This is the, the first podcast in January. This is season number five episode number one and i'm glad that you invited me to talk about different things thanks for the invitation all right my friend so we will begin you know with the first part which is you know telling about telling us about yourself you know what i've learned from you my friend is that you are what is called a self-made man uh you have fought against you know many things always looking ahead with the ability to, you know, inspire through critical, collective, social justice-oriented uh, projects, an excellent friend, you know, a person that you can rely on whenever you want to. And that's something that, you know, I have appreciated, you know, for these five plus years that we have, you know, collaborated together. So, Yesid, tell us about yourself, you know, how do you self-identify in terms of you know, cultural identification, what does life mean for you? Tell us about your childhood. Right, definitely. Uh, well, as everybody knows, my name is Jesid Ortega. And something that a lot of people don't know is that I have another last name. My, my other last name is Paez, P-A-E-Z. So my full name is Jesid Ortega Paez. And really quick uh, about my name, because, you know, when I interview other people, I will also talk about the background of their names. So in Latin America... Uh, the first name is, uh, well, the name that is given by your parents. So my name is Yesid. Um, I asked, I did ask my mother about the meaning of this. She did not know what the meaning of Yesid is. But uh, what she knew about that is like, it was an important name at the, back in the 70s. Um, at some point in the mid 70s, there, I think uh, somebody, Yesid Arafat, a Palestinian um, person who was fighting for human rights, at that time, she heard the name or she overheard the name on the news and she thought this was this person was an important name, a person. And then uh, she sort of um, thought that name was good. So she heard the name, just surge, just surge, just said, and then sort of stick in her mind. And, and, and then she said, oh, just say this is probably the right name for me. And then that's how she, she, she gave me that name. And also it resonated with other people are, are around that time. And then the second thing, Ortega is my father's last name as well. You know, typically in Latin America, this, uh, the, the first last name is the father's last name. And the, the next last name, Paez, or Paez, I would say, is my mother's last name. And then my, is Paez, is, uh, Paez is my, my, last, my mother's last name because uh, her great-grandmother was from the Nasa Paez uh, indigenous people in Colombia. Right. And I usually uh, for academic purposes, I don't use 
the last name Pais because I want to keep it for myself as, as part of my family, as part of my humble history with indigenous peoples. So I use explicitly only Yesid Ortega for my academic purposes, for my job and for everything that, that has uh, to do with uh, my work in general, right? And then the second thing that I wanted to say, yes, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, but I don't necessarily consider myself Colombian. For a long time, I, I, I have told myself and a lot of folks out there that I am sort of like a citizen of the world. I don't necessarily... Uh, feel like like I belong to a specific place. I yes, I was born in the land that that is called Colombia, but I don't necessarily see it as 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 home necessarily, right? I live ten years in the United States as well in Chicago, and now I am a, a Canadian citizen living here in 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 Canada, specifically in Toronto. I work here as well, so I live in many places and I travel around the world for various reasons. So that's why I sort of see myself as a citizen of the world, and and then the work that I do sort of oversees this uh, international mindset. How my work can help not only people in Colombia, the United States, Canada, but how can the work the work that I do can help and support different communities in different places around the world. Thank you very much, Jesse, for that you know position. Uh, the NASA population, the NASA indigenous population is the biggest eth ethno-linguistic group in Colombia. You know, they are in the south of Colombia and between the Valle del Cauca, Cauca and Nariño departments or provinces. And that's a, you know, a very important fact as you have uh, mentioned, because sometimes we don't acknowledge, you know, that we Colombians and most of Latin Americans, we are like tri-ethnic peoples. So, you know, we have not only an European background, but also an indigenous and an African descent one. And, you know, that acknowledgement is very important for not only who you are as a person, as a human being, but also as an scholar, something that we will learn in a minute. What about your childhood, my friend, in Bogota? Yeah, yeah, I, I forgot to talk about that. Yeah, I was born in the in the south of Bogota, which is a very impoverished neighborhood, uh, and and I, I I I studied my primary school over there, and obviously surrounded by a lot of violence from the paramilitaries and the guerrillas street violence, gang-related activities. So imagine that this was every day in my neighborhood, lots of, you know, like gunshots you will hear almost every day. So that's where I spent most of my, my childhood. And, and um, so my mother was, and still is a single mother. So she did everything she needed to do to send me to school because she believed she had this idea and she still had this idea that education is important for a human being and education is important for you, in this case, for me, to get out of poverty, to get out of the difficult situations that uh, we were facing at that time. So she sort of invested uh, both emotionally and economically on, on sending me to, to, to private uh, school in primary. But uh, soon, obviously, money was not enough, so I ended up in public school, both in primary, primary school and high school as well. So I spent my primary and secondary years in um, public education. 
And that's when I got engaged into, into languages, so to speak, because that's when I, I always had this passion for learning about other people, learning about other cultures and other languages, to the point that I remember to this time, one day I discovered in one notebook that my mom had a, a card, like a, it was like a, I think it was like a postcard, like a, like a postcard, but it was more like a Christmas postcard, I remember, and the postcard was in English. And then I asked my mom, what is this? And she said, well, this was a postcard that your uncle who lives in the United States sent me a while ago, but I never know what it means. So the, for me, I got this curiosity to discover what it meant and what my uncle who lived in the United States wanted to say. So then my mom gave me a dictionary, English, Spanish, and then I sort of tried to figure it out what the meaning was. And then uh, one day I say, my mom, I, I figured it out what it means. And it means Merry Christmas, uh, Feliz Navidad and Happy New Year, Feliz Año. And then that's what my, my, my uncle wanted to express this, this idea of like, uh, please be happy in the upcoming year, things like that. And then since then, I continue just this curiosity for languages. And I always thought, I want to learn English because I want to know what's happening out there, outside Colombia, outside my neighborhood. I wonder, and I want to discover other people out there through language and through English. Even to this day, I have discovered um, different cultures and different backgrounds, different people from all around the world. So that's, a, that's how I spend most of my, my primary and secondary years trying to learn English, trying to help other friends to learn English as well. Um, all right, very nice. Sometimes people, you know, I'm a teacher educator at a public university. And when I ask my students, like, you know, what, like, brought you to English? Why English? Sometimes they mention music. Is there, you know, any, let's say, kind of has music influenced the way in which perhaps, you know, at a certain time of your life, adolescence, you know, it kind of like show you a different world. Yes, definitely. And that's a very important work, the idea of motivation. What what motivates you to learn a language, in this case, English? And when I was a teenager, as I was learning English, uh, one of the things that I always wanted to say and uh, and, and I always wanted to, to write about was that, that um, it started when I was a, a teenager, I, I, I suffered a lot of bullying and rejection from a lot of people, right? And then I found myself that rock music was kind of like my safe space. Listening to rock music and hanging out with a few folks who, who would listen to rock music, I found my safe space, right? While in Colombia, you know, a lot of people talk about salsa, merengue, other sort of sorts of uh, music, um, traditional Colombian music. And I sort of moved away from that traditional Colombian music. And I sort of created my own gang of uh, rock music listeners. And then it started with rock in Spanish. And as I moved uh, throughout my years, I started listening to music in English. So at that time, we listened to a lot of like, let's say, um, Petra Boys, Erasure, The Page Mode, all of those uh, songs, Guns N' Roses, etc. So I got curious about the lyrics. So one of the reasons why I, I wanted to learn English because I wanted to understand what the lyrics were about. And at the same time, learning, um, learning the, the lyrics and singing the lyrics and listening to rock music somehow gave me power 
uh, among the community of teenagers. I remember going to different parties um, and then we we were sort of like put it aside in the parties because people were dancing salsa and merengue, etc. And then they say, oh yeah, the guys who listen to rock music are there at the corner. Don't even pay attention to them. But we didn't care because we knew quote unquote, I'm using air quotes right now because we were better than them. And we were better because um, rock music gave us power and English gave us power. So at that time I saw earlier, earlier signs of uh, English as a, as a symbol of power. And that's how everything started when I was a teenager. You know, that insight is very important because sometimes students, they want to know, you know, particularly young scholars, you know, you and me, but also the ones who are already consolidated, like how did they, you know, begin their, their journey uh, in English and, you know, why English? And I've noticed that most, you know, people, they have been like touched by music. Uh, perhaps it wasn't my case. Mine was more about baseball and, you know, having the chance to play in the Caribbean and being in touch with Puerto Ricans and Venezuelans and, you know, with scouts. So it was, you know, my motivation was different, but, you know, I have noticed that this is, you know, like most people are like really touched by music. Music is what really like moves them. And I'm glad that you have, you know, touched base on that. Well, do you mind if we move a little bit along to the academic realm? You know, when we met each other in 2015, you know, it was a really cold January, Tuesday morning, I remember. Uh, at that time, you were finishing your MA. Could you please tell us about your professional trajectory? Definitely. Um, this is something uh, that I need to back up a little bit after After my teenage years, I noticed that I was really good at English uh, to the point that the English teachers, when I was in high school, they wanted me to be their TAs, the, teachers assist, the teacher assistant, in which I was helping the students. So after I finished high school, there is this idea that you're supposed to choose what you want to do for the rest of your life. What is the career that you want to uh, uh, do and what is what you want to study in undergrad, right? So most people always wanted to be a doctor, an engineer, or an accountant, um, or a lawyer. These are the main things that everybody wanted to be, just because when you are poor, you want to get out of this poverty. And the only way to get out of this poverty is to have a good job. And to have a good job means to be a doctor, to be an engineer, or to be a lawyer, right? But guess what? I didn't want to be one of those because for me, I started earlier. It's not about money. It's about engaging with communities, with people and learning languages. And I knew because I still have it in my mind. Remember, I told you, my mom told me education is the key to get out of poverty. And then I took it in my head and I said, okay, well, if I am good at English and then I'm good at teaching, well, the next point is to become a teacher. So that's when I enrolled in the English and Spanish, uh, at that time it was called English and Spanish Bachelors of Art in, at the Universidad Distrital in Bogota, Colombia. And that's when I started four years. At that time it was only four years um, program to, to become an English teacher and a Spanish teacher. And that's how I started in Colombia uh, as, as, a, as an English teacher. And then once I finished four years of um, the bachelor's degree, then I started teaching English at a poor um, 
primary school in in my neighborhood, so teaching English to these little children. But that only lasted for like a year or so, and then I managed to get a job in one of uh, the elite uh, bilingual schools in Bogota that I'm not going to say the name, but it was one of the elite ones because a friend of mine uh, knew the potential that I had in terms of teaching English, in terms of engaging the students, and sort of he recommended me to teach in one of these schools, and I was I was hired. So I was happy because imagine coming from this poor neighborhood and then now being the teacher of English of these sort of elite students in in the north of Bogota, which is the opposite of um, uh, the poor people. So the poor people lives in the south and the rich people live in the in the north of the city. So I was teaching the at this um, uh, at this school and also happened to find another job in the evening at another prestigious university in Bogota for a couple of years. So imagine that I that I started getting this experience being a teacher in primary school, in secondary, but also in post-secondary as well. So in two years, I, I amazed this experience of, of being a teacher. And deep in my heart and in my mind, I knew I wanted to transcend boundaries. And I wanted to get out of Colombia. I thought at that moment that I already had the initial background or the basis of language education. And now I wanted and I needed to see uh, English in action or English in their natural habitat or English uh, uh, where I can experience the culture. So at that time, a lot of English teachers apply for different programs in which they it was a cultural exchange program in between the United States and Colombia, but I managed to get into this program, uh, exchange program, and I went to the United States. I went to Chicago to be an English, uh, no, to be a Spanish teacher in the Chicago public schools and other different private schools like Jewish schools, Catholic schools. So I became an, an Spanish teacher for four years. And then after that, I came back to Colombia because, you know, the visa expired. And then this uh, company that I was working for in Chicago, they liked my work so much that they wanted me to, to come back. And they sponsored me a visa again to go back to Chicago. And I did not necessarily want it to go back because I, th- I thought I gained enough uh, cultural background to keep teaching in Colombia. But then sort of they convinced, convinced me and I went back to the United States. But this time I was not necessarily a teacher. I was more like a curriculum designer, more like a teacher trainer. So I started teacher, teaching uh, teachers Spanish and how to teach Spanish as well. Like I became this trainer in which I would teach the teachers how to teach standardized Spanish in the different schools. And I, I did that for a number of years, four more years until the visa expired. And at that time, I felt like I wanted to have a, a, a change in my life. And I decided that Canada was the best uh, option at that time. I didn't want to stay in the United States. I somehow was disappointed with the system and disenchanted with the American system. I arrived to Canada. I was happy to start. I started my own business because I had this experience in the United States being a, a Spanish teacher for children, babies and teenagers. So when I arrived to Canada, the first thing I did was to become a Spanish teacher for babies and children. And I did it for, a, for I think, for a couple of years. I started my company. I started hiring French teachers, Italian teachers, uh, Chinese teachers, and then I trained them how to teach the language. So I, I did this for two years until I 
I decided that I wanted to go back to school and enroll in the master program, in the Master of Arts MA programs at OIC, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. And I started my research over there. And then for me at that time, I got the, the, the chance and the fortune that Jim Cummings uh, became my supervisor. So when he asked me, what is your research going to be about? And then I said, well, I was had this experience of almost 10 years teaching in the United States with bilingual students, with bilingual children, with parents. So my research at that time, the master's program was about um, bilingual parents, Spanish and English and their babies. So I did a, a little research, actual research on how, how to go about it, how to create the activities, how I would do the activities and how the activities would help the, the, the babies or the children uh, with literacy achievement. And that was my research at that time. I really enjoyed it. I really liked it. And I felt at the, towards the end of that project, I felt that that, that was that was like the end of a cycle. Well, that's you know pretty cool what you have mentioned so far because some teachers, uh, some English teachers, we in a, you know kind of let's say a cyclical way you know move in and out of school you know uh, work. And what you mentioned about teaching Spanish in the U.S., you know, it's something that resonated with me because I also went in one of these cultural exchange programs, but I was in North Carolina. You know, which is you know a southern state, and the culture was like really different and shocking to a certain point with you know the Colombian values and the way in which Latin Americans, in a certain way, let's say uh, understand you know the world and how to socialize and all this. So yes, in OEC, you know the CTL program, curriculum teaching and learning, offers two master's degrees. Why languages, you know, language and literacy education? Why not the other one? Yeah, like like I said in the beginning, like I have always been enchanted and enamored with languages. So it was a natural, a natural path for me to get into that program. And also because obviously Jim Cummings was in the program, Nina Spada was in the program, Alistair Cummings was in the program. Uh, and so these are sort of gurus that at that time I admired that I have read for many years back in the 90s in my undergrad. So it was natural for me to, to take this program. And also because I was focusing on, on, on language specifically, not necessarily on curriculum, right? Or, but specifically about language, specifically about bilingual education. And that's why I decided to focus on, 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 on that program. Very nice. My friend, how did you become a critical scholar? You know, how did you awaken, you know, in a sort of, sort of saying, you know, this criticality, where did it come from? How have you mobilized, you know, this concept in your work, perhaps at the personal level too, because I've noticed, you know, we, we have been friends for so many years that you are coherent at the personal but also at the academic, professional, and research level in this sense. So could you elaborate on that, please? So if I want to continue with my sort of timeline of research, so I finished my master's degree. I finished talking about bilingual education, bilingual learning, children, babies, and parents, and the importance of parents in, in, in bilingual education, right? So I wrapped up my thesis. I wrote it up. It was up there, and then I applied for the PhD. So I applied for the PhD 
with the idea in my mind that I wanted to sort of extend on this idea of language learning or language acquisition at an early age. And my idea was to continue working on the PhD on something that it was called, it is called play-based education. So I wanted to continue working on how children learn at, uh, in different schools, right? So I wanted to work with rural students. I wanted to work with a, a indigenous population here in Canada and com- sort of compare it with indigenous students and children in Colombia as well. That was kind of like my idea in, in my mind when I applied to the PhD. And then I was very fortunate that, that I got into the PhD. I got approved into the PhD. And it was soon when I went into the PhD that I was already hanging out with students from the social justice department at OIC, right? And then already having discussions about critical education and what it means to be an educator, right? And this idea resonated a lot to me about what do you mean by being a critical person? And then at that point, I remember creating a study group, which is a critical pedagogy group. And then because I had already taken the course in the master's uh, with Jim Cummings, the critical education or critical pedagogy and diversity education with Jim Cummings. So in my mind, it was like, I want to sort of, um, explore a little bit more in depth what, what this critical pedagogy is. And then I created the group. Uh, and then at that time, we have like probably 20 people getting into this study group. We engage with different um, um, readings from different uh, scholars, such as Paulo Freire, of course, right? And then that's when I started thinking this work is very important. And little by little, I started moving away from my idea of working with children, play-based education, et cetera. And I thought there are bigger things that are necessary for me at that time to start paying attention, to pay attention to the inequality, to pay attention to the racism, to pay attention to all of the things that a lot of students uh, suffer when they arrive to different countries, the immigrants and then the refugees the LGBTQ community, the indigenous people. So that's when I started paying attention to, to this work. And, and it got me thinking, how can I translate this ongoing idea of critical pedagogy, critical education with my already experience with language education? So I was just playing around in my mind, how can I combine these two things? And at that time, it was so interesting because I was a TA for Nina Spada. Nina Spada was invited to Colombia for for a conference. And then she said to me, she asked me if I wanted to go with her to this conference. And, and I was sort of helping her to put a presentation together, doing a little bit of literature review of the work that she was doing at that time. So we both ended up going to Colombia um, to, to this uh, conference. And then in that conference, I met different teachers, English teachers. And then I think at that time, there was this idea that the Colombian government was trying to uh, sign a peace agreement in between the paramilitary, no, sorry, not the paramilitary, the guerrillas, the FARC, the revolutionary armed forces and the Colombian government. So a lot of talks about we're gonna be in peace finally. And and then a lot of teachers were sort of concerned 
how we're gonna translate this idea of peace education, of peace into the English language classroom. And then I got together with different teachers and it got me thinking again, yeah, my idea of social justice, my idea of critical education and critical pedagogy with language would fit perfectly with this moment in Colombia in which we are trying to sign the peace agreement between the two different polarities here and also what are the teachers going to do? What are the teachers doing to address this issue of social justice and peace in the English language classroom? And at that time in 2015, 2016, there was not much literature about it. And there was a, one specific a book that is called Social Justice in English Language Teaching from Hastings and Jacobs that uh, was published around that time. I think it was 2016 when I said, this is going to be my line of work. This is going to be the line of work that I want to pursue from now until whatever time it takes. I want to pursue the work of social justice, the work of peace education in English language teaching, in TESOL, uh, in bilingual education, etc. And that's how everything is started at, at sort of at the beginning of my PhD career. Now, what you have mentioned is very important because your work is promising not only innovative and creative, but promising because, as you as you know, the Ministry of Education in Colombia they kind of reshaped the public schools curriculum to incorporate you know democracy and peace into you know this uh, subject area. And some of the things that I you know noticed as a teacher educator in a public uh, university is that neither the Afri-centric nor the peace-building curriculum that we have built for both the public education sector but also for universities has been really implemented. It's a piece of paper that we know it exists. However, nobody has taken the time to really put it into play, to materialize it into real world, into engaging life-changing activities. Colombia has, you know, suffered from this, not only epistemic, I would say, but, you know, clear racism from a lot of time. And even though in the constitution of 1991, we kind of, you know, changed and, and opened our ways of, you know, understanding the plurality, uh, the cultural multiplicity that we have, the plurilingualism of most of our indigenous and black populations, you know, even though all that, or despite all this recognition, you know, de jure, de facto, we don't have like, you know, enough initiatives that actually engage marginalized communities as, you know, you did in your dissertation. Could you please tell us how do you mobilize social justice and peace building education in both your pedagogical and research projects? Yeah, definitely, conceptually, Social justice has always been about equality, has about uh, finding the spaces uh, for others uh, to be resilient, for example. And, and also peace has been about this idea of fighting against uh, war, for example, or fighting against inequality, et cetera, et cetera. And that's something that I do both, as you said, personally, academically, and professionally. You know, people who know me in person, I'm always trying to sort of fight for the little guy, fight for um, uh, 
those people who are always being at the margins and and why not and also in my in my research i also do that at the same time i also try to engage with educators on how they can address issues of social justice how can they use different peace building strategies in their classrooms to talk about bullying for example to talk about violence to talk about war to talk about all of these things in, in inequalities that we are facing locally and internationally. So I address these issues with teachers. I work with teachers. I do workshops. I have written about uh, different um, papers and, and, and book chapters uh, about it and how teachers are addressing these issues from these two different perspectives. And this is something that I embodied. This is something that I do from the beginning. Nice. Something that I really... Uh, like from the research methodology that you are developing is this concept of charlas, you know, which is both a concept but also a data collection tool. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, definitely. Something uh, uh, that I wanted to mention and back up a little bit on on, on that idea is um, so I can so can so I can talk about uh, the idea of charlas and other things that I that I have used in my in my doctoral work or my doctoral research is that my cosmology right my uh, my worldview how I see my world it's important because I use uh, or I borrow I should say two different concepts and one of the first concepts that I that I borrow going back to my, my roots and my, my indigenous background with my great-great-grandmother, the Nazapaes uh, indigenous peoples have this uh, word that also other indigenous peoples in Latin America, they use it, it's called el buen vivir, right? And for el, el buen vivir as a, as a cosmovision means to this idea of living well with each other, right? How can we all live well? Um, with other people, with other uh, beings, with the universe, with the animals, with the plants, with the living and not living creatures. So that's one of the concepts that I use and I have always used it throughout the many things that I do. And then the second concepts that I borrow is called El Sentipensante, which is this idea, everything that you do has to go through your heart or your emotions, but also your intellect and your mind. So how did you marriage them or how do you match mesh these two concepts and how do you put them together uh, in your in, in your in your daily practice and in your research as well and this idea in my mind was permeated into the methods that I use in my in my in my dissertation and the, the work that I do you know typically we do uh, classroom observations typically we do interviews and document analysis etc so it got me thinking that when I was doing the interviews in uh, in the in, in Colombia when I was conducting uh, my doctoral uh, dissertation research over there right because I work with English teachers and their students who are from a very poor community so we were conducting these interviews with the students and then it was interesting that when I uh, starting having the conversation with some of the students, they say, but teacher, this is not an interview. This doesn't feel that this is an interview. This feels more like a charla and charla in Spanish means to have a very informal conversation, but then it's very profound. It's in, it's, it, the conversation goes very deep into your emotions, goes very deep into 
your history and who you are, where you're coming from and what you're planning to do in the future. And that's why these uh, interviews that I call charlas turn into a little bit less informal, not less formal, more informal. And, and then for me, it would make sense because they go in line with this idea of what I said, el buen vivir and sentipensante. It doesn't have to be that structure. It doesn't have to be that formal, but it has to be in line in, 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 in terms of how I see you as an equal rather, rather than me as a, as a researcher and you as a participant or as an object of the study. The charlas became more like a, a, a group of people getting together to talk about an issue that uh, matters to them. In this case, for the students, some of the issues that matter to them was about bullying, violence, drug addiction, teenage pregnancy, and all of those things that happen when they are in the teenage years. So we have a great conversation and that's why I address this um, mode of, collect of collecting data, uh, charlas. Yeah, those, you know, that way of proceeding, you know, charlas, this is small talk, but at the same time, very insightful and deep. It's very coherent, you know, at the conceptual, epistemological level, but also the methodological level, you know, and it, and it talks about the way in which you mobilize, you know, your research. And it's uh, something that perhaps here in Latin America, we should also embrace, you know, this less structured, less hierarchized way of relating to the other, particularly when we carry out research. Uh, and this, you know, reminds me of the way in which uh, uh, Orlando Falsborda, with, you know, this concept of sentipensante, he also mobilized participatory action research and the way in which we should not only like mobilize new ways of doing research, but also mobilize new ways of uh, doing politics, and particularly, you know, this notion of participatory politics and new ways of doing pedagogy. That's something that, you know, I really admire in you, that coherency in your thought and in your actions. But this is what about the future? You know, how about the future? What are your current projects, but also what do you have in mind for the near and the, perhaps the far future? I'm finishing up right now. I'm, I'm doing the final touches for my research and my my dissertation and my thesis specifically. And that thesis is very dear to me because I work with teachers, English teachers in Colombia who have been teaching students from, from a very marginalized background, right? And then they are doing everything they can with the little resources they have to address issues of violence, like I said, and bullying and all of those sorts of things with um, social justice and peace building activities and projects and different types of tasks. And that's something that I admire a lot. This is something that I'm wrapping up right now. So I noticed the importance of social justice oriented, oriented pedagogical approaches to teach English as a foreign language or English as a second language. So one thing that I am still doing and continue to do in the near future is to advocate social justice oriented pedagogies in language teaching, in English language teaching, in TESOL, et cetera. That's what I am still doing. I continue doing uh, workshops uh, in different places in Latin America and Canada, the United States and elsewhere in which we engage, I engage with uh, the teachers in how we're gonna do this because a lot of the things that 
uh, has happened is that teachers come to me, yeah, all of this theory is beautiful, all of this uh, work that people have theorized is great, but how do you actually do it in the classroom? And then I sit down with teachers and then we develop the, the, the projects, we develop the activities and even yourself, Andres, uh, you have done a fabulous work to address different types of issues in your own work with your own students. And that's something that I also definitely admire. So that's something that I currently do. Now, moving forward, um, I still think that this, this work continues to work. Um, and now I'm working with teachers here in Toronto, ESL teachers on addressing anti-Black racism in the English classroom. So that's something that we're currently working on a little mini research project that I'm having with a couple of those teachers. And it's addressing how is it possible or not, or what are the challenges and possibilities of addressing anti-Black racism in, in the ESL classroom, especially, you know, what has happened here in North America with Black Lives Matter, and then what has happened in the United States and also here in Canada specifically, is, is it possible or not? And then what I continue working with these teachers, but also to the near future is something that um, Dr. George Day has talked is anti-colonial theory and decolonial practice, meaning that's the work that I wanna continue to be doing in the near future is how can we uh, address all of these uh, social justice issues or injustice issues through the lenses of anti-colonial theory and the colonial practice. And the colonial practice means to uh, decolonize, so to speak, but with practical projects, action-oriented projects that change you as a person, also changes uh, the way you behave, the way you act, the way you teach your classes. And with practical projects that uh, address problems from your community, right? And act actively change and uh, find solutions to those problems, right? Because I continue saying like a lot, there is a lot of theory, there's a lot of uh, words going on there in the books, but nothing practical, nothing that actually changes. And that's something that I learned from the teachers, from the work that I did in Colombia. The teachers, keep working constantly on how to make changes at a personal level and on a collective level. So that's something that I wanna continue to pursue the idea of the colonization and the idea of talking about a praxis, which is the practical things to make changes. Well, thank you very much, Jesid, for this thoughtful and insightful interview. I really thank you for giving me the opportunity to interview you, the interviewer, the natural interviewer of Chasing Encounters. Thank you very much, Jessica, for this opportunity. I'm glad that you have, you know, touched upon all these different aspects that make your work something, you know, that has inspired me and a lot of people in Latin America, in North America, because as you mentioned, you touch, you know, you're able to uh, connect different, you know, aspects of politics and, you know, of trying to decolonize education in general, but language education in particular. So thank you very much again for the opportunity. I hope that you have a, you know, very nice and prosperous 2021, full of joy, health, and well, we'll keep in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Have a good rest of the week, everybody.